All right, welcome to The Bridge Podcast. I'm here with Denman Maroney. Denman is a pianist, uh, composer, improviser, and he's not just any pianist, he is a hyper pianist. Uh, Denman, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on. Uh, no problem. Uh, so with the with the hyper piano, I assume that the answer is gonna be yes, but um, I like to ask basically all my guests if they drink coffee, uh, just it helps me fill out my sense of who they are on a sort of visceral <laughs> level. Uh, do you drink I coffee? Do, I, I do drink coffee. Uh, not only do I drink coffee, but I recently bought myself uh, an espresso machine. Excellent. I decided that I had reached the age where I deserved a good coffee machine. <laughs> and it's a, it's a DeLonghi. There's a commercial for DeLonghi. Uh, and I have it every morning and at lunchtime. I don't have it in the evening. Excellent. I usually have two cups in the morning and one at lunch. I try to stick it to that. Do you do like Unless normal espresso or uh, Americanos or cappuccinos? Or? Uh, at lunchtime, I drink cappuccino, which the DeLonghi can do. And at breakfast, I drink uh, um, allongé, they say in Ooh. French, which means weak espresso. Interesting. In other words, uh, I, I, I measure up one cup and then I press the two cup button. So I get, you know, a watered down espresso. That's that's awesome that you mentioned the Allonger. Um, I'm I'm a big coffee nerd, and uh, there was this revival of the Allonger. Um, and so you know there are all these nerds that are tinkering with it nowadays in coffee um, and making it like the best the best espresso you can do. Um, so it's awesome to hear that that's what you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess coffee is getting to be really nerdy, like like beer, right? Like you know, or wine. Uh, where I live is a, a wine growing region so there's lots of uh vintners around and uh, lots of vineyards everywhere which is beautiful and the local wine is very cheap and very good you can get it in a big box and tastes good excellent cool um <laughs> all right well uh now i know your coffee habits and a little bit about your wine habits um i suppose we can talk about some music stuff um so I, I'm fascinated by your hyper piano, and I just recently came across uh, the writing that you did on your website about temporal harmony. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, with the, the hyper piano, I, I came across a, a different version of this from uh, William Sethers. And I'm curious, have you heard of any other people doing a hyper piano by that name or a similar name? Uh uh, Sethris Seth is the first one who uses this, the first one I've heard who uses that name. Uh, Todd Macover talks about hyper violin and maybe hyper other instruments, I've, although I've never actually heard him say hyper piano. I don't know him personally, so I don't, I don't know. Gotcha. Um, yeah, the the Sethers one is essentially like a whole other instrument, and um. It, I, yeah. I was intrigued to see that you have the same term. Uh, when did you come to the the prefix? Yes, I, I I considered you know trying to trademark it or something, and I figured oh nobody else is ever going to do it, and now I find that <laughs> he's done it, and I'm like oh well I never trademarked it, so I can't sue him, you know. <laughs> but uh, I actually came up with the word hyper piano because at first I was calling it uh, unprepared piano just to distinguish it from cage. And then I found out that people were using unprepared piano to refer to pianos that were not prepared at all, right? And I mean, and mine wasn't prepared either, but I was doing things to the strings. I liked the idea of being able to manipulate the sound and then play straight also, you know, to have the, the full palette available, which of course you don't if you follow cages instructions and wire it up completely. The other little detail that I found, I forget where I read this, but I read that when Cage composed the sonatas and interludes for, for prepared piano, he, he did it on a Steinway O, which is a, which is a kind of Steinway that has been supplanted by the A, I think. And it's a little shorter than an A. And I don't remember when they stopped making it, but quite a while ago. And it happens to be what I have. I have a, a 1918 Steinway O. So I don't know. I, I guess this means that someday I should play the sonatas and interludes to see if they sound better on an O than on another instrument. And I'm not aware that, you know, Joshua Rifkin or James Tenney or anybody else who has recorded 
that music used an O or what they used. I don't recall that in the liner notes they mentioned the, the maker model of piano they used. Gotcha. Interesting. You happen to know that? You you wouldn't know that probably. Mm -mm. No, I'm, I'm you, not very versed on piano uh, types, but. Uh, <laughs> Okay. So what's the main difference uh, between these different pianos? Like the uh, the size of it or? The, the size, the length of the string, the, the layout of the of the plate and the frame, you know, which which changes the, the access or not that you have to the strings. Gotcha. I think I wrote in one of my papers that uh, from a standpoint of string access, the perfect piano would be one that's straight strung. And I've only encountered one straight strong piano in my life. And it didn't sound very good because it wasn't very big, mm -hmm. you know, and to make a straight strung piano that sounds as good as a, as a Steinway D, you'd have, it would have to be, I don't know how much longer, maybe a third longer, you know. So that's why they don't make them that way. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I think that people would assume that there's something very similar to Cage with what you're doing. Um, but it's more like you have, you know, these tools and they look very, you know, commonplace. Like it's like jewel CD cases and like things that are being repurposed. Um, and I saw a video where you called them hyper objects. And I know that there's like some uh, sort of like, you know, high intellectual. I term, did. I think so. Yeah. Um, I was well, curious though, uh, where you, were you like, was that just a natural uh, set of tools that you collected over time? Or like, uh, what was the sort of journey from going uh, you know, as a non-hyper pianist to a hyper pianist? Well, uh, playing inside the piano began for me when I was a student in college and uh, I was working as a busboy and I had a tray full of uh, utensils and on a strange whim, possibly induced by, you know, what they call stupéfiant here in France. I dumped the whole thing into the piano and started playing. And of course it was very noisy and, and then I started sticking them between the strings and that was kind of cool. And so that was the beginning. Uh, and then when I went to graduate school, I went to uh, CalArts. I was invited by some other students to play uh, a piece by Karl Heinz Stockhausen called Kurzwellen, mm -hmm. which is the German word for a shortwave. And it's a piece, it's an improvised piece uh, in which there are four players and each player is supposed to divide his time between his instrument and a shortwave radio. And when he plays on his instrument, he's supposed to imitate shortwave radio sounds. Mm. And uh, from my perspective, the most interesting shortwave sounds were the ones that you would find between stations, which were like, you know, oscillators, uh, portamento oscillators. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? Or do I have to just play chromatic scales? That, that's not very interesting. Right. And so um, I went to the percussion department, which were, at that time was run by a wonderful man named John Bergamo. And he happened to have uh, a glockenspiel that had been disassembled. So I asked him if I could take some of the keys uh, to use as slides. And he said, sure. So I did, and that's how it started. I started using glockenspiel keys. Eventually he wanted those back. So then I had to have uh, keys made. And subsequently I had learned that um, <clears throat> glockenspiel keys, I forget what they're made of, maybe platinum. Anyway, they're more than steel. That's harder than the winding on pianos. So it's a better idea to get a softer metal. So I had copper bars made at a metal shop. And the, the ones that I have now have holes in them, but that's only because they were originally made for some electrical purpose and maybe there were wires going through the holes or something, I don't know. And I just had them cut to size. Interesting. Um, and now I know that you, you play with like Mark Dresser and Michael Dessen and they both seem to be doing their own hyper instruments of sorts, like with the Digibone and the like, pickups and stuff that Mark puts in his uh, fretboard. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you feel like uh, this type of uh, instrumentalist attracts other types like this or uh, how did you encounter people? Uh, oh, are, sure. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole thing, you know, extended techniques that started a long time ago, a uh, hundred years ago, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And so people who use extended techniques are attracted to, you know, 
tones outside the 12. And so there's a kinship there automatically. And uh, I first heard Mark Dresser at, at uh, the old knitting factory in New York. He was playing with Anthony Braxton and Marilyn Crispo and Jerry Hemingway. And I just went up to him afterwards and said, hey man, I'd like to play with you. Here's a, and I handed him a cassette. And to my surprise, he called me up, you know, and said, yeah, let's play. And so we did a concert at PS1 uh, that from both of our perspectives was a great success. And so we started playing together and uh, we met once a week for years and years, you know, to just work on stuff and compare notes and find the sounds we had in common and try to develop those and see where they went and figure out what they meant formally and acoustically and, you know, emotionally. <laughs> And so uh, he, I became his piano player for uh, a long time. Awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it must be great to have somebody that uh, can play play your stuff and vice versa like that. Um, I mean, getting into your ideas of like, you know, temporal harmony and pulse fields, like uh, I've always struggled to get people to play what I write out. And I mean, maybe I should be better at playing it myself, but um, it, I, I envy somebody being able to play all that type of material. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, are there any hyper guitarists or, you know, uh, something along those lines that you're aware of, um, anybody in the guitar world? Uh, sure. Uh, let's see. Well, the first one that comes to mind is one that I've worked with a lot. Hans Thomann, Okay. the German, uh, he teaches at, uh, well, maybe he doesn't anymore. He used to teach at NYU or the new school or one of the, he lives in New York anyway. Uh, he's from Kassel, Germany. And uh, he plays, I guess he called it prepared guitar at, at the time, and, but he expanded it out. Uh, and we've made a couple of records together. Uh, and on the second one, he was getting into live processing where he would be playing a computer instead of the guitar. And he would take my sounds and process them in real time. And then I would have my own stuff coming back to me in a different way, you know, and then I would, so I, then I would res be responding to him, responding to me, responding to him. And awesome. that was a lot of fun. So uh, let's see. Was he using the guitar at all during that point? Um, but during the second, uh, at that point, no, computer? but the, the first, the first one we did together, uh, I'm struggling to remember the name of it now. I can't remember the name of it, but he was just playing guitar. Yeah, it's on my website. It's on Bandcamp. <laughs> I'll hunt it down and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Uh, others, I don't know, Jimi Hendrix, you know, Frank Zappa, <laughs> uh, who were among my favorites. Mm -hmm. you know, I love listening to them and sometimes try to sound like them. I love being able to, you know, bend notes. Mm -hmm like they can <laughs> and with my with my copper bars i can do that nice yeah. um the person that comes to mind for me is henry kaiser um who's you know definitely out there with all his crazy mm -hmm. effects and weird guitars yeah I, I i know who he is but i don't don't know him mm -hmm. is there a certain point where the the hyper piano thing sort of like drifts into a desire to just like be like an instrument designer or um do you feel like a connection to the standard piano and extending it like is there ever a point where like if you just had like all the funding to hire engineers to do whatever would you eventually veer towards sort of a different type of instrument design uh i i've thought about that you know i've thought about well, you know why do i have to stand up and lean into the piano it would be nice if i just had some <laughs> some de devices you know like like i could be more like a puppeteer as opposed to somebody actually just playing. Uh, but then if I had these devices, then then there would be the problem of how do I take these on the road? If I made a special piano, well, piano is a big instrument. Am I gonna travel with that? What am I gonna do, get a truck? You know, one of the nice things about the piano is that you go wherever you go, you, there, there's an instrument there. That is, a, if there is one, of course, that's another problem that the pianos are kind of a, an endangered species. 
when you when you perform and you do hyper piano stuff is there ever any pushback from like the venue in terms of like you yes <laughs> regularly yes. it sounds like <laughs> well i mean i have i have uh letters which maybe you they're, they're posted on my website i have a letter from from my uh, <laughs> piano technician and that says that what i do is benign and i have a letter from steinway that says it's okay to you know some steinways have a bar that can be removed you know that's, that's tied, in, tied into the plate with or screwed in to the plate and I have a letter from Steinway that says it's okay to take that out uh, as long as it comes out easily you know if you unscrew it and it comes right out then you're cool and if, it, if you unscrew it and it won't come out that means it's probably doing something important and you should leave it alone <laughs> so I have that but it, it persuades some people and others are like no I'm not going to in those events, do you uh, do you sort of just revert to standard piano and lean into like the the non hyper yeah. the hypo instrument? Um, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What would a hypo piano be? What a what would a hypo piano be? I don't know. A spinet, I guess. <laughs> those are the worst spinets. Um. Well, uh, so, you know, I've been listening to your stuff for a while, and I, I only recently came across your writing on your concepts about the stuff. And so I was just like hearing the temporal harmony stuff for a while, just listening to it. And I was like, I can tell that there's something going on here, but I don't have any sort of terminology for it. Um, but uh, what was I going to say about this? Uh, you heard it and then you read about it. You said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so... I guess I'm curious when you started doing temporal harmony under that terminology and how that sort of arose. Um, because I think a lot of people have had that idea, but they haven't really like fleshed it out or uh, figured out how to improvise based on those types of lattices or anything like that. So um, when did the idea come about to you? Uh, I don't know when I came up with the phrase uh, temporal harmony, but certainly I started thinking about polyrhythm Mm -hmm. uh, as a very young person, you know, like as a teenager, when I first got into jazz and was listening to uh, people like Tony Williams, uh, just blanking on his name, John Coltrane's drummer. Oh, Elvin uh, Jones. John, Elvin Jones. Elvin Jones. Yeah. You know, those people could play polyrhythms like crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I started to study the music of Charles Ives, which is full of polyrhythms. Even later in life wrote something that he called the Universe Symphony, which had uh, 50 layers of time going. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I was exposed to the music of uh, Olivier Messiaen, who talks about, uh, what is his phrase for it? non-retrogradable non rhythms. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's a fant uh, sort of an awkward phrase that means uh, palindromes, mm -hmm. which is what all pulse fields are. Exactly, yeah. Right, the, the simplest illustration would be two against three, which is two, one, two. Dun, 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 dun. Mm -hmm. One, two, one, one, two, one, two, one, one, two, one, two. And expand that out as far as you want, and they're all they're all palindromes. Uh, and then uh, I started thinking about, and maybe this had to do with reading Helmholtz mm. or something, uh, uh, finding out about monochords and about the harmonic series and stuff like that, and then learning about the undertone series. Uh, and I guess maybe I first learned about the undertone series from Dresser. Okay. Because he was he was getting undertones off of his bass, and okay. for those of your viewers, listeners who don't know what the undertone series is, it's just the uh, the reciprocal of the overtone series. So instead of one, two, three, four, five, six, it's one, one half, one third, one fourth, and uh, that's how I build my. That's what to me what temporal harmony is about. So if you do, you know, one and one half, you're talking about a note and the octave below that. Mm -hmm. If you do two against three, that's the second undertone and a fifth below that. So if, if C is the first 
then C below uh, lowers the second, and F below that is the third, then C, then A flat, then F, then D. So there's a kind of a minor vibe mm -hmm. to it. And uh, these things expand out in time much more than overtones, right? Which all basically, you know, if you do two times, it happens in the space of one. If you do three, it happens in the space of two and so on. But the un undertones, you can stretch it out and it becomes more, uh, has more formal possibilities to me anyway, mm -hmm. as well as acoustic possibilities. Now, I, I was always under the impression that the undertone series wasn't like an actual natural phenomenon, um, it, but you're saying that Mark was getting it on his base. It, am I wrong about that? Like, is there actually a yeah, physical? He, uh, he, he was, I think the, he first was getting it using what he called his bungee cords, which were like pieces of pieces of wood with, with ridges in them that he would use instead of a bow. And you could get the undertones that way. But uh, again, you should have him on your show. He can talk about these. Uh, apparently, they happen uh, underwater also. Interesting. Undertones. Huh. So, Fascinating. Uh, and they're also, uh, I think you come upon them in heterodyning. Now, this is going to make it sound like I know something about electronic music, but I really know next <laughs> to nothing about electronic music. But you know, in heterodyning, there are these artifacts that result from uh, difference tones and things like that which mm. which are analogous if not equivalent to undertones gotcha okay okay yeah um i think sense. about them more rhythmically than than harmonically although sometimes i might you know if i want to play make a piece in three against four against five i might do it in f minor you know mm -hmm. because that chord is in the series and it's early in the city in the series so in helmholtz terms it's consonant right Interesting. Um, when I was younger, I was a big like George Russell guy, and I was always like waving this like you know Lydian flag. Lydian everything was like uh, super important to me. But then like as I got more into you know uh, Helmholtz or like Parch and uh, like Ben Johnston, and realized that there's like this very fundamental sort of seventh chord that comes out of the harmonic series. Um, I, I feel like I recently realized maybe the sort of like plagal. Uh, like four chord dominance of a lot of music has to do with the undertone series because it's kind of like, you know, when the overtones get you a chord, it gets, you know, like some sort of dominant seven, but then going the other way, it's like an F minor triad or something like that. So it's like, it's kind of that perfect right. minor four chord. Um, uh, do you well, I, I never thought any... that, that. That's an interesting, interesting idea. Um, uh, do you the, think that the, that might, yeah. The, the, the Lydian chromatic concept, as I recall, was mm -hmm. basically hung on the idea that that F sharp is closer to a note in the harmonic series than F natural is in the key of C, right? Mm. So therefore, you should play in the Lydian mode, which gives you the F sharp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think, and um, I like that scale. I you know I'm cool with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like Lydian scales, but uh, the way that I was thinking of it, I guess, is that you stack fifths and then you arrange them linearly. It's like, oh, the first thing that comes up is a Lydian scale. Um, uh -huh. I don't know. Uh, I, I kind of like the idea of undertone series having uh, like a generating role in harmony like that. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I, I was pleased to see that you mentioned Nongkaro a number of times on your website. And like, I feel like I can never bring up uh, Conlon Nongkaro without somebody sort of like scoffing or being like, that's not musical. It's so mechanical. And um, I'm glad that you, I think, are of. Uh, my persuasion here. Um, and I'm curious if there's a study of his that you uh, have as like a favorite. Oh God, I uh, no. <laughs> knowing, yeah, knowing them offhand I, by number is a little bit much. Yeah, better. I don't. I don't know them by by number. Uh, I I listen to them a lot. Uh, somebody, Peter Garland, maybe hmm. uh, transcribed a bunch of them, and I got the book and studied that for a while. And I mean, it's just, it's just so fantastic that he, you know, he's doing much the same thing, mm -hmm. but he's doing it in a way that, you know, no human could do, I guess. Mm -hmm. Although Ursula Oppens could play quite a few of them. And I, I, I went to a concert once in, at Columbia uh, by a group called Alarmal Sound mm -hmm. that was, they played entirely music of, of Nancaro. 
including some orchestral music arranged either written by him or arranged by others. And I remember that that the conductor, whose name I don't remember, but you know he was he was beating in uh, in tempo harmony. You know he was beating one time with his head, and another time with his left hand, and a third time with his right hand, <laughs> and another one with his foot maybe. You know, so he was keeping the whole band together that way. It was just astonishing to see that. Dang. Um... And I, I love that idea. Mm-hmm. Um with if we think of like non-caro as this sort of like inhuman end of the spectrum where it's like it's you know impossible for most people except for ursula oppens and then like you know we have like like i feel like you're you're beyond the the physical comfort of most rhythmic musicians uh with what you're doing um is there like anything sort of in that middle territory that you think is particularly interesting um because i mean a lot of this has got to be pretty hard to internalize uh when you're doing like three-part polyrhythms or four-part polyrhythms? Well, I mean, I've, I've worked most of my life to try to get to the point where I'm feeling it as well as thinking it, you know, and so that I can just be freely in as many zones as I want to be in. I can't say that I've ever actually got there. I mostly resort to playing patterns that I learn, Mm. you know, and then hope that the listener can, relate to it. And I call it temporal harmony to distinguish it from polyrhythm, because in polyrhythm, there's never any doubt what what the beat is, right? And the polyrhythm is the other beat that's against the one that you're hearing, right? So you hear it as, oh, okay. Uh, and my idea is that you can, you can choose any one of the beats that my band or I am giving you Mm-hmm. And let that be the one that, that to which you relate all the others. Or then ultimately you might get to where you can hear several and hear them independently, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so that's kind of a musical version of uh, okay, who, who well, Rodney King, you know. Mm-hmm. Can't we all just get along? Well, yes, and here's how, you know. <laughs> you know, we can have all the beats going. No. We get along through pulse fields. Um, right. It, is there, um, like, you know, let's say that you were just starting to practice this stuff, and, uh, you know, I imagine that there were, like, a few, uh, like, landmarks along the way where you, like, were like, okay, this is... I mean, I, I'm imagining a lot about what your experience was like in like internalizing these, but like, do you feel like there was ever a point where you like leveled up and it's like, okay, now I have this new facility, like, uh, cause you know, most people I feel like don't have a sense of what it would be like to manage that. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, did you go from like, I'm, I have the concept to like, now I'm like ingraining in my mind and like, now I can like sort of forget about it. Like, I don't know, how did, what, what would you describe the development of your uh, facility with the pulse fields like? Well, it's a constant dance between those two things, you know, and once you get something down, then it's like, okay, what's the next? What's the next one? What, what else can I do? And, and then of course you always have to keep in mind, well, okay, fine, you can do that. But, I'm not. I'm not a juggler here. I'm a. I'm a musician. I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm trying to convey emotion. So it, it's about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I get to a level where if I if I uh, write a piece, and I can, I can really play it. Then okay, I did that. So now mm-hmm. what's next? You know, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, I also noticed, like, I mean, the on your website there's a huge list of you know, uh, the different pulse fields and notation and, um, you know, it's essentially like, you know, your threes up to your nines or like twos up to nines. Um, did you ever fiddle with like, you know, say 17 and 19, or I just, I, I love twin primes, but, um, uh, that type of thing seems like it's probably going to have diminishing returns, like in terms of the level of difficulty when there's like Mm -hmm. so much to do under nine, uh, have you fiddled around with like, larger numbers that are a little bit uglier. Yeah, uh, I have a piece now that I haven't recorded yet. Uh, I, mean, I guess maybe I recorded it on a solo album I did a couple of years ago. It's called Long Odds. Mm. Uh, and because it's, you know, basically starting with nine, nine, 11, 13, 15, 17, 19, I think those are the, the beats that I use. 
And so it just kind of sounds like a, a peaceful place, you know, like, like the crickets I heard as a kid. Interesting. Very nice. I thought long odds was more having to do about like uh, like probability type odds, but that that makes it a little more sensible to me. Now. Well, well, yes, and that brings up a piece that you uh, in your little agenda you wrote for yourself. You mentioned the piece Martingale, mm -hmm. which is a gambling thing. Mm -hmm. right? uh, do you know what it is? You know what a Martingale is? I, it's I a know French it's like... a French thing where you're sure to win if you double the stakes every time. You know, mm -hmm. if you have enough money, eventually you're going to win. <laughs> yeah. But of course, a lot of people got ruined by the idea, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so in, in the piece, Martingale, I don't double the stakes every time, but I keep adding more layers of time as the piece goes on. And at first, there's only two. And by the end, there's six, I think. So that, that was kind of the idea Very cool. there. Yeah, I, I've been wanting to name a tune that myself and I'm... Uh, frustrated to see that you got to it <laughs> before me. Uh, not really, but yeah. Maybe and it's registered with the copyright office, so you better <laughs> not. <laughs> Unlike the word hyperpiano, which is not trademark. <laughs> Very good. Um, let's see here. Uh, so I guess in terms of practical things for getting into pulse fields, um, were there any particularly uh, fruitful like strategies that you found over the years? Uh, <laughs> you know my name, it is the Count. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> <Of> Sesame Street? <laughs> because I really love to count. <laughs> I count the spiders on the shelf. When I'm alone, I count myself. <laughs> it's not I count slowly, field, slowly, slowly, getting faster. One, two, three, four, one, two. I love counting. You know, so <laughs> that's how you do it. You know, you have to count. So okay. if you're if you're counting two on three, you can count one, two, three, four, five, six, or one, two, three, four, five, six. And you learn to hear each one in terms of the other, right? Which is why in my those post fields that you mentioned that are posted, uh, each each field is expressed in terms of each of the pulses involved. By the way, I should interject here that mm -hmm. I had not thought of the phrase pulse field to describe these things. Uh, it was my friend Earl Howard who gave me that phrase. Do you know that name, Earl Howard? I don't know. He's a, a brilliant saxophonist and uh, computer musician who's in New York. Awesome. I'll uh, look him up. He was one of the people that I played Kurtzfellen with. Is that the Stockhausen? The Stockhausen piece, yeah. Very cool. We were students together at CalArts. Interesting. Um, well, uh, anything I should so, look into him by him? Uh, so I guess that's the key to, to, to your question, is that to learn to hear any pulse in terms of any other pulse. That's the idea, gotcha. and when you can when you can do that, then you can kind of hear them independently, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you find that like you would write pieces as a way to like practice it, or did pieces sort of emerge out of practicing these fields? Or um, I mean, is there any sort of like feedback loop there? Uh, like I started messing around with this type of stuff uh, a few days ago, just like trying to make etudes for myself, and mm -hmm. um, you know, something that looks easiest, just like damn, this is so hard um, to internalize. Uh, so I'm curious how you went about material and like repertoire for that. I don't know. My best pieces come to me from I don't know where. You know, they, they just appear one day. You know, I just start, oh, okay, there it is. You know, mm -hmm. and then others are labors. What is it? Who was it? Stravinsky, I think, who said that composition is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Uh, my best pieces are the ones that are mostly inspiration. Gotcha. You know? And then there's plenty of others that I'm proud of that were a lot of work. You know, or then or I might have an idea that, oh, that would be cool if I could do that. Right. And so then I have to set about learning how to do it. And then once I figure out how to do it, then it's like, okay, is there a piece of music here? Mm -hmm. Can I say something with this? And Sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes not. No. Mm. And if it's no, I'm still, I might put it aside and 
maybe years later, I'll think, oh, I remember that. I can do that. I could use that. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, are you, are you a, of curiosity, like a manuscript paper guy, or, um, do you write most of your stuff on the computer or, uh, well, I, I write exclusively on finale now. Nice. And before that I used Sibelius, uh, and Sibelius was bought out by somebody and they stopped updating it. So then I switched to finale finale. Uh, but before that I was a manuscript guy. Yeah. I had, and you know, I had the. God, I don't even remember the terminology anymore, but I had the, the special uh, the paper that smelled like ammonia. And, <laughs> and I, I, I wrote hand wrote scores and they, they looked good. Nice. Yeah. You know, not as beautiful as uh, Jerome Kitsky or John Cage, but they were good. You know, and I still have some of them in a suitcase somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but eventually I transcribed them all in finale and all my stuff is, I can put it up online. Um, something that I've appreciated in looking through your scores is that they all seem to be like fairly like economical in terms of materials. Like there isn't a bunch of like, like, I don't know, these days I feel like you can see scores where there's so much complicated stuff that I don't think is getting much of a result. And so, um, I, I don't know, mm -hmm. like, it seems like you have a lot of, you know, yield from the materials that are in there. Um, uh, so with the pulse fields thing again, um, I'm curious, like, would you ever just like use a drum machine and like let it go and try to like forget about it or anything like that? Like, uh, do you ever... Oh, well, uh, well, I, I bought an Insonic Mirage when that, that was the first, you know, the, the first cheap sampling machine, basically Sam, the first cheap sampling keyboard. You know, before that, it, you had to have a synclavier, which cost a fortune. Mm -hmm. But then the, the Mirage came out and you could get that for, you know, $1,200 or something like that. And I bought one of those and you can put a pulse on, you know, sample, sample a pulse. And then if you play it, uh, if you transpose it up an octave, then you have all your pulse fields. So you can just hold a major triad and hear what it sounds like, you know, oh, in terms of rhythm. And sometimes when I explain undertone series or temporal harmony to people, I talk about how it's as if you had a piano that had, you know, another eight octaves below the eight that are there, right? And when you get to the, you don't have to go very far below the lowest note on the piano. I forget what, what would it be? 440, 220, 110, 55, I guess it's no, 20, 22 and a half, I think is the lowest day on the piano, right? If, if you go in another octave below that, you, you don't hear a tone anymore, you hear a beat, mm -hmm. right? So uh, pulse fields are just, just chords that are too low for the human ear to hear as such. Mm -hmm. So there's harmony there, hence temporal harmony. And uh, so it, you're doing the under anyway, back to, back to the Mirage, you could just, you know, you could play any interval and hear what the, what the frequency relationship was. Mm -hmm. If, if what you were hearing was not a tone, but a beat. Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so uh, when you're doing this with the undertone series, like it's occurring to me that you could do it with the overtone series, essentially with like tuplets and just, it would be dividing, um, and so uh, I'm, why am I asking about this? I guess I'm curious, uh, do tuplets ever work their way into your music? Uh, because you seem to be getting a lot of mileage out of like the multiplying, but do you ever do the divisive? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so playing pulses is just the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. After that, it's like, okay, how do I play uh, rhythmic canons? Uh, and, and so in order to play a rhythmic canon, you need to be able to, to if you play, if you want to play a triplet rhythm mm -hmm. in three against four against five, then you have to use triplets as well. Right? Uh, so yeah, I do, I do that. And I guess the piece that I, I did that's uh, well, a couple, a couple that address that issue and one is called Fowler's Blues. Uh, uh, Fowler's my middle name, so that's where that comes from. Uh, and it's a it's a, a, a triplet rhythm. 
right? And since a triplet rhythm is very close to swing, you know, then you're getting to where you can swing in temporal harmony, mm -hmm. which is something I'd really like to do because I love jazz, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I, I guess uh, I remember back in the day realizing that if you approached time signatures with a, a swing feel, then it's, you know, if you're in seven, eight, and then you're like supposed to be swinging in seven, eight, then it sort of becomes 21, and then it becomes this whole complicated thing. Um, right, but, right. <laughs> excuse me. Um, well, uh, you know, so I saw that you did this, uh, you know, set of songs from Yates, and uh, I, I was sort of curious about uh, your relationship to poetry and translating it into music, because you know, I, whenever I read about like poetic rhythm, I, I can't help but think of it like as a musician, and I'm like, what is this, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. so I'm curious how you translate that type of stuff over to music. Um, and I know that like Yates had like a sort of chanting style, um, and I'm curious if that came in to the equation. Uh, I am not familiar with that. What was the chanting style? This is, I, I don't really know either. My dad just told me about this, uh, but um, I guess he was very emphatic about the rhythm and there was this sort of song quality to it from the get-go. Um, so, um, I mean, I don't know enough about it to like actually <laughs> direct you to- Yeah, I, I didn't know that either. And yet I've set 10, ten of his poems to music. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I related to Yeats, uh, because I have Irish ancestry, mm -hmm. and uh, Maroney is an Irish name. Uh, my father never talked about his Irish ancestry uh, because he was born in 1908, and I guess in his early years, being Irish was not an advantage in America. You know, no Irish need apply, and all that. Uh, you don't hear that anymore, but certainly did at the beginning of the 20th century. And so he never talked about it. His name was James and his, his uh, childhood friends called him Pat, because, like Patrick, you know, Irish mm. stuff. He was okay with that. But again, he never talked about his, his heritage. So when he died, I said, okay, I'm gonna find out. And uh, I resolved to go to Ireland. And I thought, well, before I go, I should, you know, read up, I should learn something about the country. And of all the reading I did, uh, Yates was the one that I responded to the most. And so that was the beginning of the cycle that I did uh, called Music for Words Perhaps, which is a play on a, a series that he did called Words for Music Perhaps. Uh, and this is the one that I recorded with Theo Blackman. I understand you interviewed separately. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in my settings, I used a lot of temporal harmony. You know, I would have the singer sing in one pulse and I would play in two others. And it somehow worked very well. And I used that cons consistently, I think, in all of them, with the exception of Yeats' most famous poem, The Second Coming, which is the one that everybody can quote a couple of lines from. The center cannot hold. Slouching towards Bethlehem, you know, all that. Those are phrases you hear all the time. I think I'm less well-read than you are, so. <laughs> well, he, 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 that poem is quoted a lot. It's its most famous poem. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, I recently said another one that he did called Slouching Toward, well, uh, Sailing to Byzantium, beautiful poem. Uh, and I'm actually going to start rehearsing that uh, day after tomorrow uh, with a singer named Emily Lesbo, who was French. I met her when she was living in New York. She lived in New York for a number of years. She's a good singer, good improviser. Awesome. She lives near here. Very cool. Lyon. Um, what other poems, uh, poets have I said? Oh, she's also going to sing uh, a fragment of The Wasteland. T.S. Eliot that I was attracted to. He actually wrote a piece and then I read the poem and I said, oh, that works, right? And so I put the poem in the music, it worked. Right. At least I think it works, we'll find out today after tomorrow <laughs> how well it works.
so when you look at uh, these poems, uh, I mean, are you just sort of like taking it for what it is and what it means to you? Or like, do you do like any analysis of like the, the form and that type of stuff? Because like for me, uh, poetry well, is so I, interesting formally. But... I love poetry more for the meaning. I, I don't do spend much time analyzing the form. Hmm. Uh, if, if a poem is, seems to me to be really good, I usually read it over and over again to the point where I memorize it. And then hmm. after reciting it to myself many times, I hear new things in it. And I love that process. Of how it's like peeling an onion, you know, reading a really good poem. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I learn a poem and then I think, oh, I could set up the music. There are other poems that I've that I've known for years that I've memorized uh, that I've never set to music. I've never heard music that goes with them. I just love, just love the poetry. But as I say, I'm not. I'm less interested in it. Uh, formally, I'm sure the, the form has to do with why it speaks to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't feel compelled to analyze it the way mm -hmm. I would a few. You know, where I could say, "Oh my God, he's doing it in you know, he's doing it in retrograde at, at half speed. That's so cool." You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, which is the kind of experience I have playing Bach, whom I love to play. Mm -hmm. Is there any uh, poet or poetry that uh, you feel like is the most rhythmically advanced or anything like that? Rhythmically advanced. Maybe not advanced, uh, but, you know, just like enticing to you rhythmically. Uh, well, I guess Yeats is my favorite, but the poems of his that I like the most are, are the lyric poems, which is really kind of a small part of his output. He, he wrote a lot of epic poems too that don't really speak to me so much. And mm -hmm. I, I gather that they involved what he called automatic writing, where you just kind of let the mind go. Mm. Uh, those, not so much. Uh, I love sonnets and of course sonnets have a fixed form and I know what it is. And so I guess I respond to them on that level. Mm -hmm. uh, I especially love John Keats, although I've never set a Keats poem to music. I did set a Wallace Stevens poem to music once, and I love his work also. Interesting. Um, let's see here. Um, realizing that we're getting up on an hour here. Um, uh, I'm curious, you know, so I spoke with Michael Dessen and just I'm curious if you've done anything with the telematic stuff or like the, um, like, I know the network connection out there might not be. Uh, well, uh, most of what I've done is uh, thanks to Sarah Weaver. She has put together uh, several ensembles of fantastic musicians and uh, I've gotten to work with her a bunch of times uh, doing that. And it's usually involves people in different parts of the world as well as people in the same room together mm -hmm. and uh i've enjoyed that uh but i don't know anything about the technology of it you know i was i watched your interview with michael because i know and love michael mm -hmm. uh, and i was impressed by his how conversant he is with the actual technology you know? mm -hmm. which i'm not gotcha um uh yeah I mean, and I, I would pursue it further but as i told you i have an adsl connection here you know so mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm not going to be doing telematics from here anytime soon they've they've put fiber in the street but they haven't hooked up the homes yet gotcha. and i asked one of my neighbors how soon he thought that would happen and he said oh five years <laughs> <laughs> i don't understand that but and you were in new york before france right yes Gotcha. Yeah, um, I, I've lived in New York from 1976 to 84 in the city. Mm -hmm. And then I lived in a suburb, uh, Rockland County, which is across the Hudson, up the river, 20 miles, <clears throat> for another 35 years. And I moved to France two years ago, Excellent. just before COVID. 
<laughs> wonderful timing um yeah I mean, is there any particular reason you just wanted to live in France? Or I mean, I'm envious of you being in a rural rural area of France. Uh, well, this we had we've had this home for 20 years, and we had two homes, and eventually it was like we don't need two homes. So why do we have two? And so then we had to choose, and the, the choice was easy because uh, our home in New York, which when we bought it was quite rural, had become very urban mm. to the point where it was kind of intolerable, you know, so loud all the time. Mm -hmm. And here it's so quiet that, you know, you can, it's like Cage being in the soundproof room, you know. <laughs> there's no silence really, but only because there's so much, you know. You can, you can hear your heartbeat, you can hear your brain waves going. <laughs> Um, how has that influenced your like uh, your practice and your woodshedding and all that uh, to be in an environment that's like peaceful like that? <laughs> uh, well, it's hard to parse that out. Uh, the, the house is not big enough for the piano. So okay. we put the piano in the local church, which is right around the corner, uh, which is a big, boomy, very echoey room. Mm -hmm. It's a church that was built in the 17th century, made of stone. You know, it's got a very high ceiling, and so it's very echoey. And I guess that affects my well. So instead of just going to the piano, you know, with my coffee, mm -hmm. I have to like say to my wife, "Okay, I'm going to go practice now for a couple of hours." Right. So then I have to figure, okay, when am I going to practice today? And so I go and I practice. And when I do, I'm going to practice for two and a half, three hours. And then I'm going to come home and that'll be the end of it for the day, you know? So that my, my practice rhythm has changed. Has it changed the, the, the music I write? Probably, but I don't think I could separate that from the fact that I'm older than I was two years ago, you know, <laughs> whatever, or that I'm reading different books or learning different poems or seeing different things happening in the world. Mm -hmm. you Previously, know. was your practice more kind of uh, spontaneous or just like whenever you felt like it or? Yeah, I mean, the piano would be right there. It was in a, it was in a, I had a studio. It was in a wing of the house. So I could go there and I could shut the door and I could play. Uh, it was a, it was a terrific arrangement. Uh, and now I have a studio. It just happens to be a church, and so I, I play for the services, and that that affects how I think, I guess, in some way. It doesn't make me turn to God, but you know, it <laughs> makes me, <laughs> at least not not that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, assume I mean, I've always thought that that. What I assume that you don't play. Uh, I, ha piano. I haven't played hyper piano there yet. I, I think they would be alarmed if I did. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I think I will try it someday. Uh, I, I can't wait to hear. The trouble how is that they would probably stop the service. You know, which is not my role. <laughs> <laughs> my role is to keep the service going. You know, and help the people sing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I guess the last question I'll ask, um, you know, uh, since we've talked about like martingales and, uh, you know, you're mentioning like various reading and poetry, um, what sort of non-musical influences um, are, I guess, like top of mind for you? Like whether it's like books or like anything that you mm -hmm. uh, sort of have been strongly inclined towards that you would want to share? Well, I'm certainly a Francophile you know, here and uh, trying to learn the language. When I came here, I thought I knew the language pretty well and I learned pretty quickly that I have a lot to learn. So I'm trying to learn that both by meeting people and by reading French literature, uh, which I enjoy a lot. So I'm reading that. I'm currently reading Les Miserables, which is to borrow, was it Donald Rumsfeld? It's, it's a long, hard slog. <laughs> you know, it's like 
it's like 1700 pages long and he uses all kinds of words that I don't know and <laughs> few people know anymore. So I stop and look them up because that's part of the point is to broaden the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Sort of takes me back to, you know, trying to read difficult English literature when I was a teenager and having to have a dictionary with me all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's just like that, except that now I have my phone instead of a book to look up the words. Um, I'm very attracted to nature, which is here in abundance. Uh, but I trace my love of music to that too, because there's so much music in nature. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, not just you know the rhythms of it, the sounds of it, uh, being in it. I get some of my best musical ideas when I'm out walking in the woods or in the mountains or whatever. Uh, poetry we talked about, that's an abiding interest. Uh, I have yoga practice that I do. Uh, I have Tai Chi that I do, Tai Chi that I, uh, not every day, but most days I do that, uh, which helps to center me and keep me in shape. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a bicycle, which I am a serious biker, or I was until recently when I slipped on some ice and Ooh. broke four ribs and punctured Ooh. a lung. And so it was really bad. Uh, and so I had to, you know, when you broke ribs, there's nothing you can do except just be still Ooh. for a month. So that's what I did for all of February. And I'm, I'm coming out of it now, but I still haven't got back on my bike. But before the accident, I was riding between an average, maybe 75 kilometers a week, which is, you know, 30, 40 miles. So I was pretty serious about it. Nice. And uh, I love that. Uh, and even though I live really in the boonies, there's a bunch of good musicians around here. And I've met them and we play and we, we have fun doing it. So Excellent. there's that. That's not non-musical, obviously, but it's it's great that uh, there are people around who are good. Are there any uh, French composers that you're particularly fond of? Oh, yeah. I, well, I mentioned Messiaen. Mm -hmm. I love Ravel. I read a biography of his and of him in French recently, which I was interested in. Uh, Gérard Grissier. Nice. I love cool. his work a lot. Uh, uh, let's see. Ben Waddell Beck. I really admire Ben Waddell Beck. He's a piano player. Interesting. I, he's, I'm familiar. He writes really good stuff. Uh, he's an improviser, but also a composer. Uh, let's see. Does WC do anything for you? Yes. I mean, I assume. That yes. In fact, uh, during the during the confinement, confinement, uh, I found a, a recording of Pelias and Melisande, which was a work I didn't know. And so I, I watched it all the way through a couple of times and I had the had the libretto and I had the score and I got really into it and nice. I found it a fantastic piece of music. Uh, Berlioz, I like Berlioz. I like uh, uh, Boulez. I like Boulez. You know? yeah, Boulez is my guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, total serialism. What a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> one one composer I haven't written, haven't mentioned, who affected me a lot is um, you know his name just flew out of my head as I said it. Um, Henry Cowell. Mm -hmm. Henry Cowell and I James also... Tenney. James Tenney, who was my, he was my teacher, one of my teachers, one of my composition teachers. Uh, but Henry Cowell's book, New Musical Resources, I love that book. And uh, Harry Parch's book, I like that book. Uh, Thelonious Monk, he's my favorite, my all-time favorite monk. Um, I, I spoke with uh, John Schneider, who leads the Parch Ensemble out here in LA, and um, he's such a deep dude that has like you know like recreated all the parts instruments basically like he's you know basically mm -hmm. tuned up the glass little cloud bowls and stuff um i'm not sure if you've seen like that guitar uh the whatever it's called the altered guitar and it has like 
all these little color things on the fretboard. It's really, really interesting stuff. You mm -hmm. play with like yeah. a, a slide and, you know. Well, anyway. one of my classmates at, at Cal Arts was Dean Drummond, who mm -hmm. uh, inherited Harry Parch's instruments, you know, and had this band called News Band, New Band for many years, and invented some instruments himself. One was called the Zamusophone. Uh, and uh, uh, well, Parch's book also is, is really interesting, you know, the whole, and it re relates to very closely to the way I think about harmony, mm -hmm. you know, because it's, it's like the you know the, like the monochord, right? I I know that I just said that would be the last question, but I uh, I'm sort of curious uh, what your thought is on this. Uh, so I was interviewing a microtonal guitarist, and he basically asked if I do microtonal music, and I was like, no. But at the same time, the stuff that I do in the rhythmic rhythmic domain is essentially microtonal. It's just very 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 slow microtonal music. Do you feel that way about uh -huh. what you do? You know, because it's in many ways uh, like you're playing in just intonation and the rhythmic domain, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I think about it that way. And also I try to, I mean, that's a big part of what hyper piano is about, mm -hmm. being being able to play microtones. Interesting. You know? I didn't catch that part of it. Um, are you doing that by just bending the string a little bit or? Well, yeah, if you just if you just bend it, you can, and depending on where you are on the keyboard, you can you can cover the the whole semitone, you know, in as many increments as you like between one one of the one note and the next. And if you go more towards the center of the string and start, of course, on the piano in the middle register, you have three strings per note. So depending upon how you angle the tool you're using, you, each of the three strings of a given note is playing a different note. And if you increase the angle, right, if the, so if the three strings are like this and you put your tool like that, then, you know, you can go from here all the way to there. Interesting. Right, which makes, you do that and go the other way. You, you can make a, let's say if you're playing C, D, E on the keyboard and you have your tool over the strings of those notes, when you start doing it, it sounds like C, D, E. And when you get to here, it sounds like E, D, C, right? You can flip it over on itself and go through every uh, gradation in between. So that's a, uh, you know, when I, I admit that when I first started doing hyper piano, it was about effects more than anything, right? And that, that got all pretty quick. And so then it's like, okay, where's the, where's the music here? Mm -hmm. You know, and then that becomes, my thought process having to do with harmony and so you figure out like any string player would okay so where where are the notes and what what notes can i get there and how do i get from one to the other and where do they lie and all that kind of thing mapping you know mapping that out problem is that you don't you because it's the piano you can't take your axe with you wherever you go so you, right. you know, you're on a new piano and it's a whole new ball game mm -hmm. which which also is part of the fun because then Okay. Oh, here's some boy. I can't do that on that other piano I was playing the other day. I can do this. Is cool. Uh, you know how does that work? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, listening to your hyper piano stuff, it's like I'm not usually a fan of people like doing dingly things in in a piano, but like you've integrated in this way that like I I was very impressed by. Um, you know, because it seems like you're in some sort of environment, like an improvisational environment where you know, real-time decisions are being made. And uh, it's not just like you're playing with effects or making squiggly sounds or anything like that. So um, very cool stuff. Um, well, a lot of time, I mean, it's, that's, I'm happy to hear you say that because that's a big <laughs> part of it. You know, how do I integrate what I do on, directly on the strings with what I do on the keyboards and what, what works together? And so a, a lot of it is about like, okay, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm playing on, hyper piano and I'm hearing these notes and where are they on the keyboard? You know, can I, can I match them? Mm -hmm. You know, which is of course, that's a, that's a well-known game to an improviser ghosting. It's, it's a game that gets old pretty fast, but if, if you do it with yourself, you know, it's, it can be very, very fruitful and effective. Mm -hmm. And it's also a way to learn how to, how to transition from one to the other, right? If you're going to go from playing on the strings to playing on the keys, that has to make sense. You can't just, 
say, okay, I'm done with that and I'm going to do this. But, you know, you have to make the transition and transitions are mm -hmm. the, the lifeblood <laughs> of the music. Mm -hmm. yeah. cool. Interesting. Well, um, I, I, I'll let you get going here. Um, Demon, thanks for your chatting. It's been interesting to hear all your perspectives on everything. Um, anything uh, that you want to plug or anything? I mean, your website's denmanmaroney.com. Um, anything right. else that you want to mention before we uh, Yeah, if you want to learn more about hyperpiano, there's an article there about that. And if you want to learn more about uh, temporal harmony, there's articles there about that. Uh, if you're interested in purchasing some of my music, which I would love you to do, there's a there's a link to my store, which is gives you links to uh, Bandcamp, where most of my output is available. Excellent. Do you feel like the best uh, hyper piano uh, example for somebody to start off with is double zero, or is there anything else uh, recording wise that you feel like? Uh, well, there's double zero, and then there's also uh, hyper piano studies, which is something I did recently, cool. which is taking one technique and making music out of it, mm -hmm. which I do with like, I forget how many tracks, 12 or 15. Very cool. Awesome. Cool. Well, Denman, thanks so much for talking to me. Um, and uh, I'll let you know when this is up. Thank you, John. I enjoyed talking to you as well. Awesome. Have a good night. Yeah, you too.